You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. It was another bitterly cold morning in Everett, Kansas, a rural farming town like so many other hundreds of small rural communities throughout America, particularly in the Midwest. During this time in the American history, it was the, known as the Great War, also known later as the World War I. During this time throughout the country, little country schoolhouses were heated by old-fashioned pot-bellied coal stoves. And different children in the schoolhouse were assigned different days in which they were to arrive earlier before the teacher, before the other children to start the stove, to warm the schoolhouse so it would be ready and prepared for when others would arrive. This particular morning, Floyd and Glenn Cunningham, these two brothers, were assigned to heat the classroom. They were to load the large potbelly stove full of firewood. They would then take the kerosene can, soak the logs thoroughly, and this kerosene would accelerate the process of ignition while also soaking into the logs enough to allow the flames to begin consuming the wood. Just another cold morning in Everett's, Kansas except this morning was not like other mornings. On this morning, something particularly went wrong. After letting the logs soak in fluid for a bit, Floyd, one of the brothers, struck a match and dropped it into the potbelly stove. Almost instantaneously, the fire took over the oven and it was a loud explosion. Apparently, somebody had refilled the kerosene can with not kerosene, but gasoline. These young boys were thrown back from the explosion. Thankfully, on this day, their older sister, Letha, happened to accompany them to the schoolhouse. She was tending to other duties when she heard the explosion, came running to the front door of the schoolhouse, and to her horror, saw her brothers engulfed in flames. She managed to get them out, crying out for help. Her one brother, Floyd, barely alive, only to later die. But her other brother, Glenn, was mercilessly knocked unconscious and was that way for hours, only to awaken as a young boy to the conversation he heard a doctor and his mother be having about him and his condition, which essentially the doctor said to his mother, he might not live, and honestly, it might be better for him if he did not for the pain that he is about to experience will be like nothing he's ever known. Well, Glenn did live. And as he heard those words, he made up his mind he was going to survive. And to the amazement of the doctor, he did. The mother was told to try to help bring back and revigorate some of the nerve endings and some of the activity in his legs, and so she was told to massage his legs and to get him circulating with circulation of blood throughout it, but he could feel nothing, seemingly no movement in his legs. 
One morning, she finally just rolled him in his wheelchair out to the sun, the porch. He felt the sun, and he said he'd had enough, and he literally fell forward out of the wheelchair and dragged himself to the fence in his front yard, wanting to see where the other boys were playing. And day after day, his mother would roll him out and he would drag himself with his legs creating a trail behind him. And so finally, over time, he began to feel some movement in his legs, began to finally be able to place a foot before the other. Finally, to the surprise and reality of both his mother and father, stand on his own two feet. But it hurt painfully bad. In fact, when he began to take his first steps to the shock of everybody, it hurt really bad. But there was something surprising as he began to have more movement in his legs that began to help him feel better. It was not the walking, for that caused great pain. It was in the beginning of the ability to run. He would later say that running actually felt good to him versus walking felt painful to him. And so this boy, who was once thought of to be dead, and if not dead, to be handicapped the rest of his life, was not only walking, he was actually, over the coming years, began to run. And everywhere he went, for the sake of ease, he would run. To the surprise of everybody, Glenn, in his running, became a point of reputation so much so that he would eventually join the high school track team. With his body greatly burned with all of the burn wounds to show for it, set national records in high school and college. Even competing in the 1932 Olympics in the 1500 meter race. And before then setting a national record for the fastest mile ever run at that time in American history. A boy who a few years earlier couldn't even walk is now running. And stories like these are honestly countless. True story. Real people seemingly against all odds have done the miraculous, the unimaginable, the completely unexpected. Friends, it doesn't take an athletic accomplishment to turn someone's attention. It can simply be the profound reality of somebody who was dead in their trespasses and sins with no spiritual life in them, who now by God's grace has been made alive, declared righteous, and been given a new heart with new desires and affections. And that's exactly the story we're gonna see today in Galatians chapter five. It's not the story of what took place in Kansas many years ago. It's the story of what Paul writes about in Galatians 2,000 years ago and by illustrations happening before your eyes even this morning in our city of Miami presently today. How God does the unimaginable and the unexpected in people's lives. If you're just joining us and we're not here last week, we started in our next section of Galatians chapter 5 a letter to the Christians in the southern towns of Galatia, these churches that Paul was a part of planting and later is writing back to them. He's really moved from addressing issues of legalism based on the law 
to licentiousness based on supposed Christian liberty and says, hey, you're to use your freedom to serve others through love. And as we began to see, this is a battle. This is a, a war, if you will. Returning to where we left off last week, the title of this message is The Civil War That Is Not Civil. And just the reality here is that we should see what we learned last week. Christians delight in God's way and fight against their godless desires. This is just a reminder of what we covered last week from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 24. And sort of the first part of it, if you will, to kind of see this. Christians delight in God's way and fight against their godless desires. But here's the kicker, and I want you to track with me on this. If you only made it through last week's message and you do not merit to this week's text as well, you will make it as far as a Pharisee will get in supposedly living the Christian life in this way. You'll simply be known for what you are not doing to neglect of what you are doing and to neglect of ultimately why you are doing it. See, the reality is that religious Pharisees are known for declaring judgment against others. They're not like them. They don't talk like them. They don't walk like them. They don't look like them. They don't dress like them. They don't act like them. They're Pharisees. Everyone's declared unrighteous, and they're declared righteous by the absence of supposed sins. But they miss the reality of the Christian life, which is not only what's absent, but what should also be present. And that takes us to our main point for today. Christians desire to walk by the guidance of the Holy Spirit as evident through their perspective and subsequent practices. Let me just say that again. We have that on the screen there for you. Christians desire to walk by the guidance of the Holy Spirit as evident through their perspective and subsequent practices. For those of you who are struggling from a late night last night, you can go back to sleep. There it is. You're welcome. Let's look at our text. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 24. Paul says to them, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now let's stop there. You remember last week as we looked at that first part of that section, we really asked three questions. What's your problem? How bad is it? And where do you begin? And if you missed last week, I just encourage you to go back and listen to that message from last Sunday to put these together. It's like two sides of the same coin. 
That takes us now to this morning. We want to ask two more questions. And here's the first question. It's an important question. Who leads you? Who leads you? This really gets to the heart of the passage. Back to verse 16. Look at what he says there. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Now, in the context, this goes back up to verse 13 where he talks about you were called to freedom, how they should use their freedom, the summary of what it looks like to use that freedom, to love your neighbor as yourself, and doing that you're fulfilling the whole law. Verse 14, not to bite and devour one another. And then he gets into this idea of walking by the Spirit. Well, here's an obvious question. What happens if I, Eric, walk by the Spirit? Well, look at the rest of verse 16. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So let's just reverse engineer this. If you're tired as a Christian of continuing to go back to your sin, the very sin that you ask God to forgive you of, that you seemingly tempted to go back to again, you're like, oh, what is going on? How do I not do that? He's saying here, you've got to do this. You've got to walk by the Spirit. Now, this phrase he uses, walk by the Spirit, is this sort of continuous action, this continuous reality that you are every single day throughout the day walking in this direction. Friends, this is one of the most common uh, word pictures used of the Christian God-honoring life, which is how you walk, where you walk. This is a repeated reality. Walk in a manner pleasing of the gospel, pleasing of God rather. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. This phrase he uses here, walking by the Spirit, is this reality, there's no vacations in the Christian life. Now, this is not the first time he'll use this. In fact, just look with me because he uses these sort of active verbs continuing throughout the text. So verse 15, or excuse me, verse 16, we say, walk by the Spirit. Look down to verse 18 led by the Spirit. Again, verse 25, live by the Spirit. And then also verse 25, keep in step with the Spirit. Walking, being led by, living by, keeping in step with. They're all essentially meaning the same thing with different nuances to it. It's basically this image of like a child. You know, like a young kid, little boy, little girl, walks around the house falling and mom's footsteps or dad's footsteps, like the little girl who puts on her mom's heels and just sort of clocks around the house, walking around everywhere clumsily, or a little boy who like picks up his dad's tools and is like pretending to fix things, and he like adopts his dad's vocabulary. He kind of says some of the things. He doesn't know what they even mean, but he just sounds adorable, unless he's saying the wrong things and he's not so adorable. It's this idea that he is sort of like imitating that which he sees all the time. This imagery that Paul is using is in that regards. The opportunity to recognize what would please God. What is God like? What does God love? And I think what's interesting to recognize here in the text is this dynamic relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. On the one hand, the Christian must choose to live by the Spirit. On the other hand, the Holy Spirit empowers the Christian to live their life for God. So there's this dynamic reality in the Christian life. You're walking by the Spirit. 
Friends, I think sometimes we might have an expectation that's quite too low of an expectation of what it means to be diligent in our walk with the Lord. I just want to declare the reality, as Paul says in repeatedly other contexts, particularly to Timothy, that the Christian life is like one of being like a soldier, one of being like a boxer, one of being like a farmer. You've got to get in the ring, you've got to get in the field, you've got to get in the battle and not realize it's going to just take, you know, a couple minutes. I think sometimes this is how we kind of treat the Christian life, right? A verse a day keeps the devil away. Like, if, are, you, are we talking about the same devil? Are we living in the same world? Is your flesh that small and light in comparison to mine? I mean, this is mortal combat. A number of you might be appreciatively and appropriately asking the question, Eric, where do I begin? What does it mean to really walk by the Spirit? Where where do I take these steps? Here's the reality that I just want to encourage you. Every day presents a new opportunity to to begin again. A new opportunity to walk by the Spirit. You're like, Eric, I messed up yesterday. All right. New day. Eric, I might mess up today. Okay. We got tomorrow. Every opportunity before you, every day God gives you is an opportunity to wake up and preach the gospel to yourself. To remind yourself that if you're a Christian, that what it means for Jesus to have paid for your sin, to have removed from your record any of your transgressions held against you, for you to be declared righteous, to be adopted by God, to be listed as a co-heir with Christ, to be given the third member of the Trinity, that you are loved as a pledge of your inheritance, that what he gave you, he'll never take away from you. Nothing can pluck you out of his hand. You are secure. And that reality of your identity motivates you in the direction of your life. Listen to a song that sings these truths to you. Read a devotional that helps you think about it. Put your mind there. Create friendships where you text each other scripture of the opportunity to be reminded of these truths of what it means to keep your mind in the word before the Lord in this otherwise war-torn city that will otherwise be glad to silence your witness for Christ. If that's the first question, who leads you, what's the second question? Here it is, what marks you? Not just who leads you, what marks you? Returning back to our text, And continuing from our time last week, Paul moves from vices in verses 20 and 21 to virtues in 22 and 23. And look at what he says here in verse 22. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is this contrast, but what's what's the contrast from? Well, the, the contrast is what he talks about earlier, verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. This is really a turn of a phrase that Paul is using. He uses this term works because he's really honestly just kind of poking the Judaizers in the eye. Like, hey, you want to talk about works? Let's talk about works. If you want to get busy with your work, let's see what your works look like. He just talks about all these lists of these sins. He's like, but what does God produce in the Christian? What's the fruit of the life living for the Lord? And the fruit that's described here is interesting. It's not actually produced by a believer, but it's produced by the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. This is why I asked the question, what marks you? What marks you 
answers the first question, who leads you? So, what marks you? Well, he gives these nine virtues, and these are important to see. They have been organized and outlined in different ways. For our purposes this morning, let's look at them in kind of brackets of three. These nine virtues, the first three are foundational. Love, joy, peace. Why do I say that these are foundational? Because these three kind of create a foundation by which the rest of your life as a Christian is sort of built upon. And when you lose these out of your foundation, something is going to crumble, if not crash, in time. Look at the first one, love. The fruit of the Spirit is one of love. This is the foundation by which all other virtues and the illustrating actions are based upon. This is why you do what you do. This is why you think what you think. This is why you say what you say. Because I love you, I want to be kind to you. Because I love you, I want to be patient with you. Because I love you, I want to be gentle with you. Love, even as it says early in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, summarizes the law of God. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 14. To love your neighbor as yourself is to sum up all of God's law. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Friends, this is an evident reality of someone who's walking by the Spirit. Do you love? Are you characterized by love? Second one is joy. Joy is this manifestation of someone who is regularly reminding themselves of who they were before Christ and who they are now because of Christ and what Christ did for that perspective to change. Here's the reality for someone who understands joy. They're distracted by their position and relationship to not be distracted by their circumstances. Let me explain. They're distracted by their position and their relationship who they are with God, how he loves them and forgives them, how, he is, how they are secure in them. They're distracted by that to not be distracted by their circumstances. Otherwise, they're just causing them to be tossed to and fro. The reality is you and I live daily lives that have just a variety of changing circumstances. You grab 10 random people sitting before you, 10 random people, grab them and ask them to describe to you this past week They'll be completely different, circumstantially. And yet, there can be, by the fruit of the Spirit, there can be a unifying, tying theme to all of them, joy. Wait, does that mean they all got, like, raises? They all got dates? They all got birth announcements? They all got retirement checks? No. Some of them got the exact opposite of that. But their joy was not tied to the circumstances. It was tied to their position and their relationship with the Lord. The third one he describes here is one of peace. The peace is this inner rest and calmness, even in the face of adverse circumstances. It defies all human understanding, as even Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. It is living comfortably in the eye of the hurricane of life. Are you not aware of what's happening around you? Mm-hmm. What is this, like some type of like deep breathing exercise you're doing? Nope. Are you just sort of living an act of denial? Not at all. How can you be okay? 
Well, I mean, I suppose what's the worst that can happen? I die? That's a win. Well, I could suffer before I die. Well, that's a chance for me to put Christ on display. I could lose friendships. I could be reminded of ultimately what I have in Christ. I could lose my health, and then I'll learn to depend on him in my weakness. I could lose my money, and then I could be reminded that within him I could be content, and he provides for my daily needs. Really? Really? A peace that passes all understanding. Bad news, hard news, unexpected news, and yet confidence in your God. Now, let me be clear, friends, before we get too far ahead of ourselves here. Galatians is not commending a personality type. You know, some people here kind of feel like, that might just be easy for the upbeat people in the room. I'm more of a melancholy temperament. I'm more of kind of the Eeyore personality. This is a sermon for all the Tiggers in the room. Shout out to Winnie the Pooh. Those of you who know what I'm talking about, you had a bad childhood. We'll do Winnie the Pooh reading later after the service. No, this is not commending a certain personality type. This is a perspective. And the question is, do you have it? Are you marked by it? He then gets to the next three. Notice the transition, if you will, from the first three, love, joy, peace, which are foundational. So these next three become very relational. Patience, kindness, goodness. And patience is the quality of forbearance under provocation. When sort of being poked and probed, when sort of being agitated and, and, and sort of, you know, tested, it entertains no thought of retaliation, even when wrongfully treated. I see you. I hear you. I am tempted, I acknowledge, to come at you, but I know I need to be patient. Kindness is this benevolent action as God has demonstrated towards you and towards others. This reality that you are to have yourself, that you desire to be kind even when others are not kind back to you. Friends, Galatians, not Galatians, rather, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, God's kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. Do you know what a clear witness that is for people to slander you? to gossip about you, to mistreat you, and you to be kind to them. It's almost like for some of them, it's like, okay, maybe you're not clear. Could you, could you make, just see my actions? And they come at you again even harder with more judgment, more slander, more rudeness, kindness. That's the evidence of the Spirit of God manifested in you. The third, he says, here's goodness. This may be thought of a both sort of an uprightness of soul and his action towards reaching out to others to do good even when it's not deserved. It's, it's how you operate. It's how you pursue people in action. It's not just in perspective, but in action towards people. I mean, think about this. Some of you, if I asked you, what do you pray for for your church, for Grace Church, what would you say to that question? For those of you who do not know this, let me just do this by public announcement. We have every single Sunday in this room at 10 o'clock a prayer meeting. It is arguably one of my favorite things I do as a Christian every single week. Every single week, I'm with a different group of people. 
and we pray for probably about 15 minutes. Garrett leads us in a devotion to kind of prime our hearts to think about the things to pray for. He gives us some prayer direction, some things to pray about, but then he tells us this important thing. He says, don't stop praying even when you finish all the requests. Keep praying until you hear me interrupt your prayer at the end, and I'll close this in prayer. And it's interesting as you get to hear people's heart pray for each other, for the needs of the church. But if I was to ask you this question, what would you pray for Grace Church? What would you say? Without Garrett giving you a prayer request to pray for? Without you texting me, Ronald the Christian, and say, hey, what can I pray for the church? What would you say? First of all, I'd say, come and pray with us at Sunday mornings at 10, and you can start to find out. You could just read the text here. Pray God's word back to God. Pray that we as a church of Christians would be known for our patience with each other, our kindness towards one another, our goodness and our actions towards each other. Pray that the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit would be seen amongst us because, friends, here's what happens. Too often, these verses get stripped of any of the community implications, i.e. Christians in, in collective assembly, and just become personalized. Like, you are somehow trying to accomplish this perfect person. The context of the text is the Christians in community. I would say, honestly, you're not that godly on your own. You think you are. I think I am. It's only when you get with other Christians, you begin to find out, wow, I need other Christians to both model for me, to correct me, to encourage me, to pray for me, and I'm maturing because of God is using those relationships as a refining fire to purify, to bring the dross out of my life, to take any of that sort of uncleanness out of me and bring the clarity of what honors Christ. And I want more kindness, more patience, more goodness in our congregation together. Look at the last three, he says, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The quality which renders a person trustworthy of being faithful. They're reliable. Their yes is a yes and their no is a no. When they volunteer, you know you can depend on them. When they say they're going to be there, they're going to be there. They're faithful. The gentleness is both relational but also marks them individually. It ultimately reflects their submission to God's word, confidence and consideration of others, confident in God and consideration of others, they are indeed gentle. You think about the example that elders are supposed to be. They're not to be quarrelsome. I just have to tell you, if you think in me as a pastor there's anything good, that's Christ in me. I grew up as a fighter. I'm not going to lie. I grew up as a fighter. My family, non-Christian family, man, we specialize in fighting. My neighborhood, like we got down to clown. We were ready to go all the time. It is a shock to many of my family that Eric Bancroft stands before you today as a pastor. Like, you just don't know him. And I'm not trying to over, you know, tweak the testimony like I'm some, like, gangster doing drive-by shootings. I was saved from that. Though other people have been saved from that as well. But I mean to say the reality is that elders, by example, are to model what other Christians themselves are to imitate as well, which is gentleness. Does that mean that they're perfect? By no means. Does that mean that they have a thousand percent batting average? By no means. But that means that that is the practice by reputation of how they lead. This idea of self-control. It's interesting this word is used here. It's only used here and later in Acts chapter 24, earlier Acts chapter 24 in 2 Peter. It's this idea of sort of self-mastery. 
curbing the flesh impulses, gaining apart from the Spirit of God, impossible, but this idea of self-control. And you know, sometimes the biggest capacity to exercise self-control is just in what you say, what you think, what you spend or buy. Would you be known for self-control? Or do you think it and you say it? Just being honest. That's not commendable, friends. You can't use quote-unquote label of honesty as a virtue to just come up with your masking of your lack of self-control with your tongue. That's just cutting people. That's slandering people. That's hurting people. That's not thinking the best of people. Self-control with your money. Just because you have the money doesn't mean you should have the item. The act of denial is good to deny the, impact, the passions of the flesh. When you look at these virtues, these nine of them, these are increasingly tested over time and through trials. I'm reminded of college students, and I mean no disrespect to the college students here. I love college students, pray for them, pass them regularly, but it's always striking to me how comical it is to hear college students talk about how busy they are. Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, do tell. Man, I got this exam, I got this class, I'm going to this thing. I'm like, man, I don't know how you do it. You ought to write a book on biblical productivity that the rest of us adults could read and learn from you as a college student. But to the defense of the college student, at that point in their life, by comparison of life in high school and middle school, they are literally as busy they can ever imagine. And then they grow up, they become later on older adults like the rest of us, and we kind of make fun of ourselves like, man, what was I thinking? You take on more responsibility. Like mortgages and rent and marriages and children and jobs and travel. And you're like, well, what was I thinking? Well, this is that same type of idea with life. You're like, man, I'm really learning to be patient. You're like, then you get married. And you're like, man, I am super impatient. And you're like, oh, I get married. I'm actually pretty patient. Like, then you have kids. You're like, man, I am like the most biggest sinner in the room. What happens is God uses trials and seasons and relationships to test you, to refine you, and to show you how you want to return to walking by the Spirit. This is the reality of how we're to live. Look at what he says here in the text in Galatians. To be marked by these things, this is the fruit of it. Against such things there is no law, there's no restriction, there's no governing reality, there's no curfew, it's just like go for it. As long as you want, as late as you want, as much as you want, there is no limitation to it. In all these ways, expoundingly, increasingly so, be that as a manifestation of the Spirit of God in you. And then he says in verse 24, as we talked about last week, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The gospel motivates here. Why? Because it's basically talking about a co-crucifixion. What Christ accomplished on the cross for people, activated and applied when he regenerated them and they believed in their life, they're placed there at the cross. They're positionally dead, and now they're to practice that. Let me give you four implications of this, and I want you to not miss one of these implications because they're each significant. Number one, Notice the true evidence of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. The true evidence of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. Why do I say this? Because some of you come from a Pentecostal tradition, which, I mean this kindly, wrongly teaches that in order for you to be confident that you have the Holy Spirit, you are to participate in a religious exercise known as speaking in tongues which is a misrepresentation of the text 
and it turns out to also be a misrepresentation of what tongues actually are historically. And so then Christians are often chasing some type of religious practice as evidence of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. When Paul is basically here in Galatia, like, uh, can I have a word with all of you guys in Miami? Can I have a word with you guys in Galatia? Can I have a word with you guys in Nigeria? Can I have a word with you guys in Thailand? Can I have a word with you guys? How does it, what does it look like in your life? Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, that the Spirit is given to a Christian upon believing in Christ. Instead of some non-biblical expectation of religious practice, as shown here in Galatians, a sign of the Holy Spirit upon the life of the Christian is how they are, not first what they do. Their desires and their direction, not first their actions. Are you known for love? Are you known for joy? Second implication, value the role of Christ, of a, the role of a Christ-loving conscience. Value the role of a Christ-loving conscience. Here's what I mean by this. A conscience that convicts you when such virtues are absent and a desire to repent of them is keeping in step with the Spirit. Do you realize the irony of that? The irony is to read the text and to realize that you're not walking in step with the Spirit and desire to do so is ironically evident that the Spirit's in you. Not as an exercise of self-improvement morality, but an exercise of honoring and reflecting Christ. This isn't about what you should do more of and less of, be more patient, be less slanderous, be more kind, be less judgmental. This is about gospel-informed and gospel-fueled love for Christ and a sincere ongoing desire to love Christ by loving others specifically about how you treat them, how you think of them. This is a sign of the Holy Spirit in your life. Your conscience is a great indication of whether or not you're in Christ or not. Is there a spiritual pulse beating? How far can you go in sin? This is why he said earlier, if you will, Back in verse 21, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is it like a, some count, some like, you know, ledger? Like once you reach 1,253, you're now not a Christian? No, he's saying those who by reputation and repeated practice without, without any bother, uh, bothering conscience continue to do such things, it's right to question. Which takes implication number three, know the difference between evidence of salvation versus assurance of salvation. Never look to what you do to give you assurance of salvation. Because if you do that, you're placing your assurance on your good works or lack thereof. Which is a backdoor way into believing salvation by works. Instead, recognize your assurance comes from believing in what Christ has done, not what you have done. Your faith in Him and in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And the subsequent evidence of that faith manifests itself in obedience, and when there's obedience is lacking, conviction to return to obedience. So know the difference between evidence of salvation, the things being talked about here, versus assurance of salvation, faith alone in Christ alone. Fourth and final, believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture and the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit. This is important. I do not want you to miss this as it's reflecting on this this past week. A lot of times Christians who love the Word of God 
rightly believe in the sufficiency of the Word of God. Like, it's inerrant, it's inspired, it's infallible, it's sufficient, it's clear, it's authoritative. You're like, yes! Let's like have a champion, you know, anthem rally for the Word of God. And I'm like, yeah, I'll participate in that all day long. But I also want you to see the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit. Now, what do I mean here? Well, we're tempted to add to God's Word when we don't believe in the sufficiency of it. And so we should trust the Word. But we're also tempted to add to God's Spirit's work We need to trust the Spirit, pursuing, praying, and then resting. Here's what I mean, and let me give you by application pastors in the room, of which there are three of us responsible and others of you who might be visiting. It is super tempting as a pastor to grow impatient with other people's sanctification and to want to fast track it in the same way parents want to do with their children. They would just hurry up and grow up. And as pastors, it's super tempting to say, I've taught this lesson, I've read this text, I've had this meeting, I've had this counseling session, we've done this conversation, I've sent this text, why are they not getting it? To which pastors have to be told, and perhaps you have to be told as well, whoa, 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 whoa. Were you thinking their sanctification was by their work? out of respect for your work, yeah, you've misunderstood. This is the Spirit's work in them. And the Spirit confidently, powerfully, but often mysteriously works in a timeline different and through details different than you and I would ever have picked, but His ways are better than our ways. So to have the capacity to believe, I have done all that I know to do, said all that I know to say, prayed all that I know to pray, I leave it to the Lord. I mean, honestly, otherwise pastors should be the most anxious people in the room. Worried sick about what you're going to do when you walk out of this room. Just riddled with fear and anxiety about what you're about to go get yourself into. Waiting for the text. Waiting for the call. Oh, can you imagine living like that as a pastor? But sometimes we treat each other like that as Christian friends. I'm not saying not to be diligent, not to be prayerful, not to be responsible. I'm saying go to bed trusting the Spirit of God is working in the people of God's lives. And He doesn't need help. He doesn't need a co-pilot. He might choose to use you or some other providence in their life. But God is doing this work. You are a walking, living, motivating success story. It's not about what took place in Kansas in the early 1900s. What's taking place in Miami in 2023, right here before us today, are living, breathing success stories of how God raises the dead, brings them to life, and manifests in their life the fruit of the Spirit. May it be true in your life, in my life, and our witness as a community. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.